and welcome. Do you want me to do the intro? No. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the 77th very ever Shut Up and Sit Down podcast. My name's Matt Lee. He's joined by Quentin Smith. Hello, Matt. Paul Dean. Hi. And Paul Dean. Hi. We are once again in uh, Niagara Falls, New York State, uh, a very strange place with a waterfall that you can see better from another country. It sounds like a sci-fi <laughs> plot, and it sort of is. We've just finished the Gathering of Friends, which is an invite-only strange thing in a hotel where people queue up for ice cream. And yes. we've played so many board games you would not believe. Mostly brass. Mostly brass. Yeah, so, yeah, we're going to be talking about uh, brass. <laughs> I can't believe it's true, but it is. It's basically brass con for us. Yeah. Uh, uh, so brass is a game of the Industrial Revolution, but it's got new versions coming out that we've played, that we're going to be talking about that later. Mm-hmm. We finally played a game that I've been wanting to play for years. What was that? It's called Container. Oh, that, yes. Oh, yes. It's a game of shipping containers and is precisely as boring and weird as that sounds. And it is honestly, look forward to that discussion later in the podcast because it's one of the most interesting board games we've ever played. Uh, yeah. Uh, we also played Medici, mm-hmm. uh, an ancient Reiner Knizia classic card game. Um, and th- we had to buy that from a flea market because I don't think you can currently get a new edition. No, I don't And think it so. is the ugliest game I have ever played. But uh, quite good. And But first, first and Uh-oh. perhaps foremost in <clears> someone's <throat> mind, oh. Decrypto. Yes, I was going to say, I was really worried you were going to be like, oh, did we not going to mention that? Decrypto. We can kick off with that. I, l- I really, I'm just going to get out of here, I really like Decrypto. And we had a kind of fun argument, on the, not, not big argument, you know, fun argument on the way back <laughs> from uh, the con, walking back, about the difference between Decrypto and and code names because they're both code cracking games yep. yeah. in which you have two teams with limited information uh, trying to suss out what the other team is trying to do. Um, the way it works is using those kind of like red and blue acetate sheets that you get in 3D glasses that kind of do weird things with visual information. On the one team, you have like the red sheets in front of your little board that you slide these cards of garbled red and blue lines into that then make words appear. And it's yeah. kind of a, a smart way of making sure that there are two words on each card. So you you basically get loads of little cards, loads of little potential clues. You slot them in, and then you have four different words that are your clues yeah. for your whole team. So unlike in code names, where one person is kind of the, the clue master, everybody in your team can see the exact four words. And the game is, each time... You take it in turns. Well, actually, you don't take it in turns. Each team at the same time will draw a card, and it will have a three-digit code. So four, three, one, two, three, one. If you want to imagine more four-digit codes of one to four, then you can just do that in your <laughs> own time. Why not? <laughs> yeah, just treat yourself. You know what's weird? Hmm? When you said four-digit code, I also thought of four, three, one. It's a great code, right? It's one of the best. Okay. It's a three-digit code. Yes. It's but f- made up of four possible yeah. numbers. Because there are four possible letters. code of four numbers. We're doing well here. It's great. <laughs> it's a bit complicated to envision. Anyway, the way you do that then is you have to then choose words or phrases to make sure that your team then guesses the three out of four correct words in the correct order, but then also not giving away too much because the other team is taking notes of what you're saying and then what those words end up being attributed to in terms of the numbers and trying to work out, hey, you might not be able to, you know, the ultimate aim is to work out what the words are on the other person's screen behind them. But you might not need to do that. You might just need to basically work out the associations. So in ours, we had a Band-Aid or plaster if you're in the UK. And uh, I think someone said, uh, what was it? Stretcher? 
stretcher yeah and then red yeah and so, we're like we don't know what this is but it's something to do with medical something medical yeah. and injury related really nice about this is you don't need to know the exact word we were like is it something to do with medicine injury is it is it wound we thought maybe mm-hmm. um but you don't need to know the exact word you just need when they say their clue which might be like i don't know uh, ambulance potato cake um, then you're like, oh, ambulance. I bet that first word relates to the same digit it did before. Mm-hmm. Wound. Yes. So it's probably a three. And what's nice is that, so well, someone on your team will announce this weird word salad that relates to the number. And then before your team can go, oh, we know what this is, because obviously they know what it is, um, the other team gets the chance to crack it. Yes. And it's nerve wracking. Yep. Because you're like, we're going to guess for yours, because they've been over listening at 231. And if you get it right, then you get a token. And if you get their code right twice, then you've won the game. That's it, yeah. And what's the other win condition? Oh, the other win condition is if the other team fails to fail. translate their own message twice. Yeah. So basically, it needs to be that the clues you're giving are obvious enough that your team will definitely get it, but not so obvious that the other team will be able to. And it creates this really fascinating space because when you've cracked a word, we, we quite early on, we were listening and what, the first clue, what was it? It was like a rocket and cheese or something. It wasn't, oh, it wasn't yeah. as but, obvious as that, but yeah. But that, I mean, one of their words was moon and we we're pretty sure it was moon. Yeah. And it started with, was it crater? Or yes. Something? Oh, yeah, crater and cheese. They said crater and then and and they said cheese and then they said buzz. And by that point, by the time they, before they said buzz, we're like, we know what this yeah. is. <laughs> Which is kind of a great moment where you're like, you don't just know vaguely what it is, you know what it is. But what's fun is that we thought that word was moon, but maybe it could have been, I don't know, astronaut or like or it could have been hypothetically Buzz Aldrin but yeah. it, there's an opportunity that when the other team successfully cracks like if we said you know if they said scope and we thought telescope is that moon yeah uh, we cracked that number but we didn't know 100% that it was moon yes yeah. the other team then has the information that we've cracked the code which means they can try maybe and give a different clue yes and th- yes. this is what I thought was a really interesting arc to this was we started just trying to give clues to ourselves yes so some- something like the word picnic it's like oh basket but you realise as you start you know turn by turn goes by and you're building out more words for your team and you're yep. saying stuff like oh blanket basket lunch you're just obviously describing a picnic to the yes. other team so you end up in this situation where you try and go uh, uh, bears or something to yeah. see if it will well, this throw is the, the other team off and this is why I really liked it I mean one of the key rules we haven't mentioned is whenever you give a clue every clue must be related to the base word again you can't like riff off of previous clues or anything yeah. like which is super essential but it means that because you all have access to the same information, because you can see all the words, you can be really clever. Like, yeah. And in many ways, I think that's why, for me, it's actually a totally different game to Codenames, even though on a, from a distance they might appear to be similar sorts yeah, of things. I, I think they're so different. Because Codenames is a game about being as simple as possible. Yeah. Right? You don't want to mess up by being overly clever because it's going to bite you. Whereas in this, it's all about being clever. Yeah. And if being you're too clever... Obscure and riffing on an idea. We had a wonderful... A chap called Adam was on our team when we were playing. And one of ours was Scarecrow. And the clue given was the rains down in Africa. Because Toto, because Scarecrow, because Wizard of Oz. Exactly. And it was that thing of looking at it being, what is that? And then it's like, oh, that's brilliant. But then, you know, you can get from rains to Africa to Toto very easily. 
But then without having the word scarecrow in front of you, you've got the entire of The Wizard of Oz, so that's not right. that and useful. Yet, you know, what we realised walking home, it was like, we were talking about that play and being like, oh, it was so good. But then we realised, well, like, hang on, no, I was saying, yeah. if they did crack it, if they did go Wizard of Oz, no, I think one of our other clues was straw after yeah. that, so Straws after that we were done. Which means, that yeah, exactly, if they did crack it, they just have the word. Yeah. I, I was more happy with, um, one of our code words was penguin. Ah, we did a great job on penguin. <laughs> so Matt's first clue for that was egg. So obviously, Pe- sure, penguins it's a burst. They have uh, penguins famously love Bleep. eating eggs and throwing them at each other. <laughs> I'm um, sorry, you are right. I am right. Of course, they don't lay them, Paul. That's ridiculous. They have pouches like kangaroos. Uh, anyway, so but my second word for penguin was baby, and the, this I think is more where the game lies because yes. it's not that baby is anything you'd associate with a penguin, but you do associate it with penguin more than yes, any of the other words. Than with the other words. Yeah, you don't yeah. have a baby scarecrow or a baby picnic or a baby, I think our last one was summer. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And so it's like, oh, it's got to be penguin. Yeah, and I think that's where, the, that's where the game is for me. It's like, and that then makes it like almost reverse code names where in code names you have to say words that definitely mean words yes. on the grid. Where in crypto you have to say words that maybe mean And that was wonderful something. because like summer was incredibly difficult and I was like, I think my first clue was hot, which I was immediately like, oh, this is, that's a terrible clue. <laughs> like, you, so you either have the situation whereby you've given awful clues and then you need to get more vague later. But with Penguin going for egg and then baby, it's like no idea. It was wonderful because it's like by round three or four, we can start doing ice, you know? Yeah. And it's like, and people are going to be going, what? Ice, yeah. egg, baby, what is that? Ice, egg, yeah. baby. But that we have just <laughs> enough information on our side that we understand what's going on. And that, thematically, this is what I think works so well. It is you are kind of creating a code. It is decrypto. You are yeah. trying to create something baffling that is only understood by you and the people on your side. Of the it's table. the fact that the different clues don't exist in a vacuum. And the fact that, like, it's, you know, what might be a great clue for that word in one game. And then the same word in another game, based on what you've already said, would be the worst clue well, you could possibly give. We realised yeah. with horror that, like, because when it was my turn to give the clues, we'd been talking and palling around. And then when it was my turn to give the clues, I was like, oh my goodness, because... Picnic and Scarecrow occupying the same space, and summer is awful because, like, yep. they all exist in fields. They yeah. all involve like straw and baskets and, and yeah. picnics happen in summer. But if you can navigate that, and yeah. and then you really will baffle the other team because you'll have all these words that appear to be exactly the same. And yeah, yeah. So it's not that it's similar to code names. It's that my problem, like, from a review standpoint, and I think we are going to review it soon, is just that like it is like code names. You know, a two to eight player. No, four to eight player team word game mm-hmm. that in that is really playful, and it's not, and they're also they seem like almost as good as each other. Like Decrypto yeah. is longer and more involved. The thing I did like about Decrypto, in addition to um, the packaging being like gorgeous, like Codenames is a really quite ugly game, and mm-hmm. Decrypto is gorgeous. But I, Paul's right, I found it quite thematic. Like yeah. for a word game. With the, you know, because the, the, the cardboard stands and stuff all have, like, little dials and stuff. And it's all, like, World War Two code cracking. Or, like, you know, Cold War code cracking, like, old IBM computer lab stuff. Yep. <laughs> there was a touch of, like, I really did kind of feel like we were trying to intercept the message of a spy. And also, it felt like playing as spies because of the fact that you have visual information that you can all see at any one point And a notepad that you're writing notes on. You're also aware that you're constantly there's a possibility that someone on the other team might just be listening to everything you're saying. Yeah. And so yeah, it means they're we... right opposite you. They overhear you and obviously everybody hears everybody's clues. Yeah. So... so I love when we were doing it of being like, you know, immediately getting the notepad and immediately writing like number one on the first word because it's like so obvious. And I was going, yeah, this first one, oh, that's really got me, <laughs> really got me scratching my head. I, I don't know. Oh my God, these are tricky. And, and just, you know, <laughs> having, having the moments of like, you know, and even when you have that eureka moment of being like, I know what this is. Yeah. 
it benefits you to just not say that to your team, but just to quietly maybe just take the pen off someone else and just write down the word and an exclamation mark, just because then, yeah, I thought there was actually like a ton of play, uh, like differences there. We, we play with a timer, which was a bit frantic in the fact that when oh, one that team finishes. Worst. Yeah, and I like that because that's a, for a faster game, it encourages people to give bad clues because they're under duress. But if you want to take it slowly, you could have this really kind of this cold war drawn out. You can play like, across... It, Decrypto, I think, might be maybe one of the best play-by-email or play-by-forum games. Oh, you could. If the members of the Shut Up and Sit Down forum are listening to this and wanted to do a play-by-forum game of Decrypto, I think they'd have an incredible time. Yeah. Yeah, that would work really well. Like, yeah. spend weeks thinking... Less eavesdropping, <laughs> but more, like, incredibly clever clues. Do it at a distance. You could do it remotely. You could probably, possibly, like, find a way to do it all in Google Hangouts or something. Because all you need is... To all be able to hear each other and for one group of four people to have four words and the other group of four people to have four words and that's it. Or group of whatever. So do we think... Yeah, Paul has our copy at the minute, I think. Yeah. Would you like to review it? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to be uh, trying to throw some folks together again soon to play that. Also, uh, one thing I would say versus Codenames, and if you've not seen our Codenames review, there is a written review of Codenames on www.shutupandsitdown.com. Give it a little Google. Mm-hmm. Um, but Codenames, I think, was always better with like six, seven, eight players where you have a big table of rowdy people yeah. being like, oh, they're wrong, they're an idiot, and yelling at their friend. It's a it's a great party game. Decrypto, I think, is longer. It is slower, and I think Decrypto would be great with just two v two. I think yeah, Decrypto is is a diff- very mm. different kind of game. I think Codenames is a classic because it has that amazing mainstream appeal. It's a game you can just put in front of anyone, and they get it straight away. And it's exciting straight away. Yes, whereas Decrypto is a bit more of a slow burn. It's uh, not got many more rules, but it's it's definitely more of a kind of a quiet thinker's game. For me, it's fantastic. That for me, if it's like you know, which of these two games I want to play, I'd probably always choose Decrypto if I want to sit down wow. and actually play something. That's like, but if you know, it that's depends. A vote of confidence. Well, I think it's that Codenames is much more of a kind of light party game, and that's not a case. Code, but Codenames is so emotionally immediate. I mean, yes. Decrypto yes. is, but Decrypto requires like players to buy into the puzzle. And yeah. we all did because we're at a gamers' convention. But that, exactly, that's because that's not a reflection of how good the game is. That's just purely a personal reflection. Yeah, no, as that's, me, that's like, valid. Though. I want games that are puzzles I can get into more. Yeah, I think um, I think they exist in different headspaces and yeah. probably appeal to different kinds of players. And I think like I, yeah. I'm going to try some two. To decrypto, um, and I think it will be a thing where we're not. I'm not selling it as like really silly and playful and uh, like comically going wrong the way that Codenames does. It's gonna be initially simple and get getting more tricksy as it goes it's along. It's a different like experience. I think 2v2 would be fascinating just because you might end up having a weird mind melt thing. You might yeah. end up just being able to look at each other, and not even have to talk about the clues you're doing, and just be able to have some sort of weird synergy I think it would be really interesting speaking of mind melds if you missed the last podcast it's definitely yeah. worth going back for our discussion of The Mind mm. oh, that uh, game is crazy I will say no more uh, right should we move on to ooh, should we do oh. should we go big small big let's do Medici next okay we can, we can dock that chip we can <laughs> okay cool we'll, we'll save up to the very big and juicy things so yeah let's talk a little bit about our first plate of Medici Medici so you found this in a flea market at the Game of Friends yeah the Game of Friends the Gathering of <laughs> the Friends the Game of Friends you win Game or you Thrones. die friends um, and it appealed because it's an older Rainer Knizia like yeah. some very interesting was, games by him that have sort of gone was, out of print yeah there's a pretty exhaustive flea market here at the Gathering of Friends and I thought I'd get up early and wander around and it was a bit weird because um, I was like you know, I like rarities and antiques, and there were yeah. they, they were there. But then the whole time I was walking around, looking at like the occasional out of print game, or you know something that like an old edition that doesn't get made anymore. I was like, but I, I always think of what 
Tom Vassell of the, uh, reviewing site The Dice Tower says, well, if a game is really that good, it's going to come out again. And it's probably with new manufacturing going to yeah. have a nicer edition. So, you know, I'd be holding these old games in my hand and then going, if I wait two years, I'll probably be sent this for free by a But I did manage to pick up a couple of gems. I found mm-hmm. a sealed box of Condottiere, which I mm. gave Matt. Yeah. Uh, and that was awesome. But I also found Medici, yeah, an old Reiner Knizia card game. Uh, Reiner Knizia, if you're not aware, is... Kind of, he had a period in the 90s of just being like, you know, I don't know. You Incredible. Know that, you know that trait, that, that fact that people use 10% of their brain or whatever. Reiner, for a brief <laughs> period in the 90s, was using like 140% and made some absolute monster pieces. And all very uh, remarkably clever games, all quite different and yeah. diverse in their subject and the way that they play. And a lot of them now are being re-released and we've covered them again over the last couple of years. And a lot of them have really stood yep. the test of time as it, well. If you want to Google uh, our review of Tigris and Euphrates, of Ra, Modern Art, Through, through the, the Desert, desert through the desert, Modern or... Art, I'm, is, of all of these, I think Modern Art's the one I like the most. That's very good. Really? You love yeah. that one? Yeah. Uh, or Samurai of course um, but yeah Medici has had a few weird additions it's not really had the definitive one I don't know quite who has the license now I knew I couldn't buy it and we finally played Medici and yeah what did you guys think it was good it was good it's so it's this uh, basically it's set collection isn't it you're you're bidding on cards uh, you take, you're all taking turns bidding on cards saying like I will pay pay four points because you're also bidding the points that you have which felt like terrifying yep no, it's fine it's just business you've got to spend money to, to make money and then the card <laughs> cards go on your on your boat which is the ugliest looking board in front of you and the different kinds of cards have both a value and a type and you score points according to the values of the cards, but also if you can be the person who has most of a certain type of card, you get more. So if you've got the most grain or the most boxes or the most... What was that? Like a ghost nun woman? I oh, don't the really art, know the art assets were incredible, but we'll talk about that in a bit. <laughs> but it's such a simple idea that it's just like, I, I can't bid on this hand of cards because I don't have enough room left on my ship to bid on this hand, so I have to pass. Uh, you know, wait for that to go around again. These cards are very valuable, but they're not the type of card that I usually want. So am I going to yeah. start collecting those as well? It was uh, basically kind of with limited information, just, just having to constantly bid on what was in front of you based on exactly how many points it was worth to you. But this is... Or other people. And I found it, like, <laughs> intensely stressful <laughs> to play. It struck me as struck me as being, like, a real gamer's game in the fact that it's such a weird thing. Of like, it's unlike Container, which we'll get to in a bit. Like, when, when you were bidding for stuff, mm-hmm. because it had a, everyone bid once, and that was it. Once round, and then that you're was, done. that was the mechanic that powered the game, because it meant everyone's bid was a very tense decision. Yes. Where you, this is your one shot at getting it. And if yes. you're first in the bidding order, then it's like, you need to say the number that no one else will go. But the yeah. crucial thing about this, and the thing for me, which meant it was a game that I wouldn't want to play in most circumstances was the fact that you weren't just bidding you weren't bidding on stuff that you wanted you had to bid <laughs> to ensure that everyone else paid the prices they should be paying for things yeah because mm. this wasn't a blind auction like no. where everyone secretly puts their bids and then reveals everyone knows what the previous bids are so if and this happened a lot because <laughs> Paul absolutely smashed our game and won um, a bid would come up a lot of cards would come up that we knew Paul wanted and Paul might be like last in the bidding order which means some, and then I would like pass or something Yeah, and that means Matt is the only person left who has to say a number to drive up the bid because yeah. otherwise Paul pays one so there's this weird it's thing fine. where like it's fine and I think if, if you're playing with a group of people where everyone's on the same page and everyone's sharp and everyone has a rough idea of the numbers and everyone's 
then it's fine. But when you play, when we were playing it, like it's not that you guys were like stupid. It's just everyone was really tired, and yes. we were in a TJ Fridays and having a beer. It, and it was uh, like often people would just look at the cards and go, "No, I don't want an AM pass." And then someone else would look at them and go, "No, I don't want an AM pass." And I'd be looking at them going, "This is worth like thirty points to pull. Yeah. <laughs> I now on my own have to choose a number." That is going to be a fair price, but then I, I'd do I, it, and half the time you'd be like, "No, nah, you can have it," and then I just did that. I like the bit where you, you bid twenty points for some cards that were quite good, and then you had them, and then they were of no use. They to were you. useless to me, and it was just—it's <laughs> a game that, as a balance mechanic, requires that all the players, at some point or mm. not, and really that's the way it's round once. It means other players can, on purpose, leave it to you to be the person to do it, but then more often than not, people would just be the last person to do it, and they just go, "No, you could just have it," and you'd be like, "You just gave them like forty points," I just, which is in, infuriating. I, lo- I love that. I, th- there is the dynamic that everybody is involved in pretty much every round, or or is yeah. kicked out of every round by. Because the amount of um, space left on your ship also determines whether you can bid on cards. Mm. So if you've got if you've bought, already bought three. And then someone else deals three because maybe everybody else in the game still has three spaces left. And if you've only got two, you you two miss out left. that round of bidding. Yeah. So there's the whole thing of like, how many cards are you going to choose to draw because you can exclude people that way? Yeah. Um, there's multiple levels of things to consider, and for me, none of those levels are like too complicated. No, They're just no. all interlinking in interesting ways, and that that really works for me. Uh, the uh, the other interesting thing being like you're going through this deck and you're all taking turns to deal out auction lots but if you all pass on a lot that someone deals out it just gets thrown in the sea and yes. you can only do that like, about once before like there's just suddenly not enough cards left yeah so, so somebody you, just doesn't get five yeah you, so you also have this weird thing of like if you have like filled up your hole with four cards then you can just start like passing forever because then other players start you, you can cause other players to actually panic and be like what which happens in Ra as well, another fabulous Ranikinitia auction mm. game. In Ra, where players are like, oh, I'm going to sit back and let you spend your money. And then suddenly you realise there's that the time's run out and the round's almost over and you have nothing. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a bizarre thing where it's like, it's very much felt like a game of an era where lots of people who were playing games at that point were people who were, you know, we, they played games. Whereas now, you know, I think... Shifting into an area where you do have different different skill levels, different awareness levels. Well, it's like I, competitive quarterbacking of being like, it feels awful if you have to be the person who's constantly leaning, leaning over and saying, well, no, you have to try and bid more than five because this is worth this much. And it's just like, ah, oh, I don't know. It, it really, it was just such a frustrating experience that it meant that like, A, you're trying to tell everyone else what to do all the time, which is bad. And B, they just go, oh, I don't care. And then you end up basically throwing mm. your wallet into the sea to try and stop someone. <laughs> I mean, you definitely need... Everybody's got to be engaged and aware of what's going on. But then, also I mean, math-y. I would say that about... Also mathsy, because I, I, I'm not very mathsy, and I, I struggled. I was really having to strain myself to work out what things were worth to people. I was doing very approximate figures, to be honest. I was doing it in a very woolly kind of way, where I was like... I was way more concerned with types of card and like, is this a type of card that I'm chasing after rather than the exact values of things? And that worked out okay for me. Yeah, yeah. Should we talk about the art design briefly? Oh, it's just horrible. Unbelievable. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was, it came from an era where Photoshop maybe wasn't a thing and didn't have tools. Or eyes weren't a thing. Well, it didn't have like, I don't think it had auto-align or anything like that for oh. shape. So it meant that like all around the board, there was lots of squares and, and rectangle shapes which were just different distances away from each other in a way which did not look it, intentional. It's awful. It's like a six-year-old's graphic design project. The score tracker takes up maybe more than a third of the board 
Yes. No, it takes up a good 50% of the board. Yes, the score trackers is incredibly fat rectangles, but then it goes around between like 59, then a picture, then 61, then a picture. So it's like half the numbers but not are pictures. <laughs> but not <laughs> different pictures. Like, like Paul Just described the same it, picture. Paul described it, I think, as a zoetrope, where it's like, you know, it's the same picture over and over again, but because the Photoshop is weird, it's like the picture <laughs> infinitesimally grows yeah. or shrinks. So it's like... Yeah, we had like a ghost nun that represented a type of trade good, I guess. But then she was on the board, must have been 25 times. Yeah. Like, it's a fascinating thing because it really, it just is such a product of its time. It's incredibly uh. ugly. Um, but also a game which was delightfully designed, very simple, very, very clever, very good. But also without any stabilizers, which is just, you know, it's interesting. And I'm not saying that all games need stabilizers. Yeah. It's just fascinating to play something like that where it's like, hey, if not everyone knows what they're doing. You're just going to fall in the sea. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know. It's just... Probably one to play again when we're less tired. Yeah, right? But okay. still, like, I kind of feel like games including a little bit of a system to stop, yeah. like, accidental king-making from just being a huge, huge problem. Yeah, and I think, you know, when you do go back in the 80s and 90s, there are a lot more runaway leaders and there are yeah. more sort of, like, just players losing but losing hard. Yeah, I could just yeah. see it being a, a really effective argument machine. <laughs> That's yeah, what, uh, which that's is a shame because I think that's what people from the outside think board games are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like yeah. if you go back and play old games, it's like, oh no, they they did used to be. Yeah, they're not now, guys. Yeah, because I think like well, I think this might be a good time. So that was Medici. Yeah. Medici. Um, and might be a good time to move on to Container. Container. Yeah, which is pretty similar in a few ways. Yeah. So I I watched you playing <laughs> some of this and uh, I'm going to give brief impressions based on like looking at this from a distance. <laughs> It, you have a series of different things in this that you can do. You can produce goods in factories. Yeah. You can warehouse goods in warehouses. Yeah. You can put them on your docks and you put them on broats. And broats go to an island and then they sell them. But you cannot, one does not simply like you don't make your own goods and move them to your own warehouse and put them on your own boat. Do no. you? That, that, would be, that would be far too simple. You have to hand every stage of this process off to other people. And all of these things are at different points in the game worth different values. Yeah. And that's about... It you know, seems to me that's all you need to ruin your life for that afternoon. So what's amazing about Container is like that it's, it's like nothing I've ever played. And we should stress that we played the new Mercury Games edition, which I mm-hmm. think is coming to retail with a price of around $120. It's quite pricey. Yeah, and it's because these boats are the size of bath toys. They are the yeah. largest resin miniatures, we were told, in the history of board games. They weigh enough that I think you could drop one out of a like second floor window and quite easily kill someone. I did make a joke that they're like a Cluedo murder weapon. Yeah. Because yeah. they're just they're big and big hard ships. And then my favourite is the containers themselves that you're manufacturing and moving around the whole game, like which are shipping containers. You know those long uh, sort of rectangular things. Yeah, they have they're gorgeous. They're also resin. They have this lovely like ridge sides. Mm-hmm. Like they look like mini shipping containers, but they're about the size of like breakfast cereal or something. But unlike uh, Rising Sun, which we looked at recently, and Matt wrote a great piece on how like the miniatures in that just do not fit the game. Yes, they've spent an insane amount of money on mm. resin ships and containers, but they are the perfect size to touch, to book around, because you have to load these containers onto ships as well. It's a lovely thing. And the little ridges on the sides of the containers the pace are, are of great the, grip. Yeah, the pace of the game is so... In some ways, it's very fast, actually. It whips yeah. around. Like, you know, you don't have to wait too long for your turn. Things happen. You're moving things. But because there's all these steps before you actually get to the process of, okay, now I'm putting things on my ship, 
and moving the ship to the place. Moving your ship around is the slowest part of the game, and it's not even especially slow, it's just everything else is rapid. And it means that when you actually do get to the point of filling up your boat with some crates and shipping them somewhere, yeah, it feels perfect. And actually picking up this big thing and moving it around, it feels exactly right. So let's... Oh, you... Yeah, no, it's just it's weird about this thing of, like, you kind of look at them from far and go, There's, why are these this big? But it's fine. It feels so... It feels good. It feels right. When you have to spend... It's so funny, because when you have to spend your whole turn just moving a ship out of someone's port... Yeah. The fact that the boat is so heavy negates that feel-bad moment. Exactly. Yeah. It's so funny. Anyway, so here's the thing about Container that makes it interesting, Paul. So the integers in most Euro games, and let's get number wangy here, yeah. are usually really high. It's like, oh, I can get 16 points and then double them if I've got golden factories or whatever. Yep. In Container, you might, if you turn on your factories, that costs a dollar, which actually get paid to the player on your right because they're your union boss in this awful, like... Oh, so there's an extra level of... Well, geography. yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's the okay. whole game is like snakes playing Twister, but for economies. Like, it's like everything is crawling over everything. But you might manufacture a crate for a dollar. You might sell it for two dollars. Someone might then warehouse it and they will load it onto a ship for three dollars. And then you take it to an island and someone buys it for four dollars. Now, the thing about these numbers being so small is that if any part of that chain goes a bit higher, like I go, I'm not selling them for two, I'm selling them for three, the entire economy explodes. <laughs> and, the, and, it's, and it's incredible. So we hit, the moment for me that container made sense was like, I was playing and I loaded some stuff into the ships, I took them to the island, then I sold them to the island, and they were auctioned off. And it was amazing because someone paid me $4, and whenever you sell stuff to this little uh, island, the government always subsidizes sales because it wants goods on their island. Mm-hmm. So they double the money. So I got $4 double to $8, Paul, and I was like, yeah. And the person teaching the game went, so I think you made $1 profit on that. And I went, no. And then I checked. It's like, no, hang on. I bought those containers for $3 plus $4, $7, and I got $8 for the sale, and it took me three turns. Yep. Yeah. And I, and in, but in doing this, it's not just that I made like no money. I made like five bucks for the guy sat opposite me. Yep. And, and that is that is container, because then what happened is I went, well, I'm not selling anything, and that's the game. The game is in this like incredible negotiation, not literally talking, but like someone increasing a price or decreasing a price, and then someone else going, "Well, now I can buy it." And like, you know how when snakes eat something, like it takes like weeks for yes. the rat to travel the length of the of the of the body and finally be excreted. That's container. Like that's what's so strange though. Watching some of this happen and watching the level of disconnect between the different moving parts or the fact that everything's sort of like a. It's like stepping on seesaws. You press down on something and somebody (laughs) else goes up. Yep. But that like four times over. Yeah. I think what was fascinating to me was usually what will happen is, you know, in a Euro game or somebody, your machines always escalate. And it might mean that somebody explodes and shoots off and they suddenly just start like a shooting star into the distance. They're just on a point train to heaven. But in this, people just freeze. It's almost the opposite. Every now and then you'll have a turn where you just suddenly make a lot of money. But a lot of the time, what's more likely to happen is you'll be making a bit of money, you'll be making a bit of money, and then suddenly your economy just hits a wall. And the only way it can start up again is if something else changes. <laughs> yeah. But things do change because everyone has two actions and you're very, like, on their turn, and you're, and you're very aware you need to spend your actions well. And the idea of, like, passing is just, it's, yeah. you just couldn't do it. Because the only thing worse than making no dollars is making zero dollars. So, I don't know, what was that beautiful term where I just realized I was screwed? I built a bunch of factories and was like, okay, I'll be the person who actually makes these stupid containers. But then I had so many containers on my docks, no one was buying them, because a few people had factories. I was like, you know what? I'll take an action to reprice. And I made everything cost one. Everything's a dollar. Now, 
it's and then it kicks off. <laughs> but, the, but the interesting thing about this, another really key thing about this, which we haven't mentioned, is that the economy in this game uh, is fairly oh finite. Oh, this is the best thing. At the start of the game, everyone has a certain amount of money, and at that point in the game, that everyone is has, the only money in the game. We all yeah. had twenty dollars, so the pool of money that exists in the game it was eighty dollars. Eighty bucks. Yeah. And then the first thing we all did is, I was like, oh, I'll build a factory, and, Matt, and you know, Matt's like, oh, I'll build a warehouse, and then it's like, okay. The amount of money in our game has just gone from eighty dollars to like fifty-five dollars. Yes, which means suddenly no one can buy anything. Yes, because when these things arrive at um, the island, the very end, the very final bit of like, oh, okay, we're actually going to get yes. these containers on the island. It's just an auction, which means if you know there's no money in the economy, the number in the auction is going to be lower. But that's awful because the economy, because actually taking to the auction and getting government subsidies is the only way more money gets yeah. injected into the game. Which means if someone bids for four and wins, then you only get another $4 being added into the money pool. Oh, Which if oh. someone is buying a factory for $8 every turn, means like you're yeah. just losing. Which it's, it's not something you ever need to think about tremendously. It's more just the fact that if when you're buying this infrastructure, you're kind of aware that by doing so, it might just mean that you're not able to then make much money out of it because you're taking money out of the game. And it becomes a weird thing <laughs> as well of the fact that if everyone builds infrastructure then there's just not really any money yeah which means that no one can make buy the things <laughs> and no one can and there are mechanics in place you know that I think in the original game it was possible to like really like just hit walls so with the, for everyone whereas in this there are mechanics in place so that money can be can appear if you all just freeze out but it has a lovely thing and the geography that we mentioned earlier the fact that whenever Quinn's produced he had to give me a dollar now in the early game that was a nightmare for him because it cost him a dollar to produce and that dollar went to me yep. and then he'd make a crate <laughs> which he might be able to sell for two dollars so it's still like it's great for me because I just get a dollar for nothing and then I built these warehouses so I could store more of his crates yes. so I buy his crates from his factory and then they go into the front of my board in my warehouses and then it means that I'm buying three crates for one, putting them into my three warehouses, and then selling them for two. Which means, once I've sold everything, I've made a profit of $3, whereas he has spent $8 to make these boxes, which he's given to me. It did which seem on, like... On paper, right? That seems like a terrible and deal. what's amazing is I was doing this for turns until I was like, oh, hang on. Like, you know... <laughs> It was but, and this is the crucial <laughs> thing, right? But, Quinns was getting really annoyed yeah. with the whole game. He was like, this sucks. I'm making a crate. And it's like, no, but especially when he had three factories, it still just cost him a dollar, which means each crate he makes, and he can make them every turn pretty much because he's selling them for a dollar and they're going. It costs him 33 cents per crate, which he sells for a dollar, which means he makes 66 cents a crate for doing like nothing, basically. Whereas... Me and the player next to me had both built loads of warehouses. Yeah. And it meant that... <laughs> if the, and this is why I was getting the dollar. This is why I was getting the dollar from Quinn's because I it was a compensation for the chances that I was not going to be able to buy any of that stuff. And what started to happen was the person next to me built four warehouses and every round just ate up everything Quinn's was selling. And then it got to me and I had all these warehouses that would cost me money for infrastructure yeah. and yeah. I, I had nothing I could buy to put them it, in. It seemed like uh, one of the things that <laughs> some of you were going for as well was like, I'll be the, the factory player yep. and I'll be the warehousey player, which worked for a while until it didn't. I was basically like Walmart and I was the person next to me was getting absolutely shafted me. They were like, you know, a mom and pop store and they were trying to keep up and I was just making all the money and they didn't know what to do and they couldn't do anything for like half the game. And then... 
they invest, they got some money and they invested in the infrastructure to just have more warehouses than me. And then suddenly it was like Costco appeared and I was just like, I couldn't do anything. And I, yet that, I, I was, but the thing is, is that, but it was great. It's not like a war game. <laughs> like that player who then meant you couldn't do anything didn't do well. Like, no, from your, he, he destroyed your bottom line. Yeah. But he didn't make a bunch of money either because no. those warehouses were expensive. Also, he'd spent too much of the game not being able to make any money. Yeah. But none of that was interesting about it is none of it felt bad. Yes, and this is what was nuts for me because a Euro like when people when we say the term Euro game, what we mean is a very popular type of board game. These German games like Agricola, where you build a farm, or I don't know, Russian railroads, where you build a railway empire. You slowly build up this um, machine that generates points or resources, and you make it bigger every turn. You grow something, and that's great. Like, but it's just, Eurogames are a genre of this gentle satisfaction. And we're just about to talk about Brass, which is an example of that. Oh. But but in Container, it was just so emotional every time. Like, if I made a sale, it felt incredible. Yeah. And if, if when yeah. my engine started falling apart, it was like desperation. Like, we were making a lot of jokes about, like, you know, being the businessman, loosening his tie, being like... <laughs> Uh, calling his wife and being like, I'm not going to go home. I think the mafia are going to break my legs. Like, in a, in a weird way, that made it the most accurate, like, depiction of, like, global capitalism yeah, right. I've ever played in I mean, a board game. Because it made no sense. Yeah, it kind of made no sense. And also, it was completely reliant on not even, like, relationships of trust, but just on everything, on status quo. And I mean, I remember you saying at one point, like, you'd never seen me react like that to a game. Like, <laughs> because I, I just went from being like, yeah, I know what I'm doing, to being like, I have no idea what I'm going to do. <laughs> not even like, I guess maybe I'll have to do this thing. Because you have so few options. Yeah. Really. That it's not like in most Euros where you think, all right, well, that didn't work. I guess I'll just build this. Build but that, that's the good. other thing. It's It looks so specific. It looks like there are a certain number of things that you do. Yeah. And that it do, it's not a game that explodes in concepts or where you like unlock new bits of the nope. board or introduce new mechanics or new inventions. It's just like, this is how the system works that's it well, and, okay. and you might just go nuts and build four factories and it might have been the worst idea in the world <laughs> and you might just not make any money from well, it so right? this is the thing Paul right so like as Matt's describing I, I happened it just shook out that I was the only person with a really good factory economy it didn't have to go that way but it did so I'm making these crates as Matt describes I'm selling them that's awesome but like I, that meant because I was the only player in our terrible economy and obviously you can play games in container where the economy works well Yes. And it's and we've been told that it's very different every time you play. Mm-hmm. But so, yeah, oh great, Quinns is winning and making all the money. But like, I didn't... Because if no one's making money, then eventually people stop buying from my factories. And I had turns where I would like, you know, oh, price everything at one, sell them. Price everything at one. Oh, they don't sell. And then my docks are full. Also, you've got like different colours of the crates and they're worth different things to different people. That's the one aspect that's like yes. secret. So you're looking for certain... Certain things, but then this was a rule of like, you know, the thing you have the most of in your dock at the end gets thrown away. So you have to try and get like lots of your best scoring ones, but then higher of ones you don't want. Yeah. And so this was the weird thing that in my, in the situation I'm describing what I was the only rich player, I was then like, oh God, I have to finish off this economy. I have, when we get the crates off the warehouse and finally deliver them to this island, I actually have to like buy them so that other players have money so they can keep buying from my factories. Yeah. But then finally, and like Medici, like it's a it's another good auction, but it's completely different because the auction in container is a blind auction. Yeah. What that means when the boat finally pulls into the island after having many turns of like everyone nickel and diming each other, you have an auction and everyone has to put in what they think it's worth. But it's worth different amounts to different people. Yeah. Which meant which means constantly players overpay. It's like in the first few turns it's like, oh the bids are like two, two, three. But in, in like by midway through our game, suddenly the bids became like four, five 21 you know like and then that becomes double so suddenly a player receives 40 bucks and then everyone has to adapt and maybe like 
when 40 bucks enters the economy, yeah. shit, reprice everything. Yeah. <laughs> like, make everything more expensive yeah. immediately. Yeah. Yeah. It's that thing of, like, I've got, like, four bucks. <laughs> and now I know they've got 45. It's like, how does that balance out? And it just, it just doesn't. That's so interesting, though. The idea that there is, there is or isn't money in the economy right now. I mean, it's wonderful. The fact that, that all you can do, really, when you're completely stuck, when you're like, oh, my engine just doesn't work anymore, is maybe just buy a box or two for three or four dollars, ship it slowly to the island, and see if anyone wants it. And, yeah. and, and it's I, like gambling. I had a lovely thing of being like, I had two boxes on a boat, and I landed on the island, and like one bid was like two. One bid was four, and some bid twelve. Oh, that was me, yeah. And I'm like, that's twenty four dollars. I'm like, I'll have that. And I mean, that just invigorated me. But it was also that wonderful thing, and again, of the fact that you can look at these boxes and go, you know, because money at the end of the game is also worth a point per dollar. Yeah, you in can, fact, it's just a game of money. Yeah, it's a game of money. But that means you can look at it and be like, okay, well, these crates at the end of the game are worth thirty points to me. But then if you bid fifteen right dollars, that seems like a great deal. But then that's fifteen dollars that might just be leaving the economy especially yeah. if it's your boat you yeah. can pay it which means it's like it's worth 30 at the end of the game but is it worth not having 15 for the rest of the game yeah oh, it's really fascinating and I mean also it's just that when you freeze up and don't know what to do a lot of it was like for half the game I was sailing because you were just selling stuff every turn you sold stuff I bought stuff I sold it and then out of nowhere because you started moving boats around instead your supply dried up <laughs> and I was just looking up as if to go it was like what happened? It was like we were these fifty-year-old businessmen who had had this like incredible thing, and then suddenly it's like, ah, oh, yeah, sorry, we're not, you know, we're cutting off the business. And you're like, but, <laughs> but, my but how am I going to make money for my business because your business is shut down? And it being this thing of like, yeah. it wasn't done to spite me. It was just like, oh, we're closing the business, and me going, oh god. And yet, the funny thing about container is, it's like, you know, it's not in any way complicated I mean it's com- it's a nightmare to play it's like a hilarious awful business nightmare but it's got like what five pages of rules or yeah, something it's yeah. pretty simple and I didn't yeah. find it that stressful it was just even when you got stuck it wasn't like brass which you'll get to where you, you're sitting there desperately trying to puzzle out a way to eke a few points out of it it was very binary it was either like yeah you're gonna do well this turn or like there's nothing you can do like just try and find <laughs> something to do because it's all broken yeah it's fascinating and people can look forward to some kind of review either a written or video review of Container on the site in a few weeks I think it's out in the new edition's out in July or June Ooh. yeah we'll get, uh, we'll get uh, back to you on that so yeah, so, yeah as a caveat obviously you know from the price it's very expensive and we'll yes, cover that but it was uh, remarkably expensive for for what it was yeah. for something that actually apart from these amazing ships looks quite basic though yeah it's it's really an odd one it's a very unique experience it's very enjoyable but it's a it's a lot of cash yeah but yeah that's something which we shouldn't really have to caveat because you can see numbers for yourself and value <laughs> is uh, As we uh, found out from container, value is completely meaningless. Really. Yes, exactly. Mm. Right. So speaking of va- a game oh. where value is not meaningless, let's brass. talk about brass. brass. brass now, we did the brass double. You're listening to the it. brass cast. So people might have seen my video review of brass, brass by Martin Wallace, which came out about, excuse me, I'm going to burp because of brass. Uh, about 10 years ago, um, I know that, that number I just pulled from my bottom. I don't really know when it came out. So, but the point is, Brass is a classic of board game design. People, famous board game designers talk about being talk about it being one of the only games they play hundreds of times. Yeah. Um, and, and in fact, we met lots of people this weekend who came over and said, I've played this game hundreds of times, yeah. to which we kind of replied, really? <laughs> <laughs> so um, I gave a video review of Brass. It's one of my favorite video reviews that we've ever done, actually, if you'd like to watch the show. You fell in a canal. I fell in a canal. I dropped cake on the board. It was lovely. But ultimately, I ended that review going, 
Ah, oh, this is hard work, and maybe I don't recommend it, but it is fascinating. Yes. Yeah. So, weirdly, then, something very odd happened this weekend, because they, a company called, a Canadian company called Roxley Games, is publishing new editions of Brass that are as beautiful as the old edition was basic and ugly. The Kickstarter went live, I think, last year. And they're kickstarting two versions of the game. Brass Lancaster, which is a beautiful update with a few tiny rules changes of Brass. And Brass Birmingham, which is kind of... Well, we didn't know how different it would be. They call it a sequel, but does that mean, like, it's a new map? Uh, We didn't know. So when we knew it was at the Gathering of Friends, we sat down to play Brass Birmingham, the sequel to Brass. And you two hadn't played Brass. No. And, uh, well, we'll get to details in a second, but we all loved it. Yep. And that caused me to be terrified, because it's like... Wait, was my original review of Brass wrong? So then the next day, we played something else they have here, the new edition of original Brass, Brass Lancaster. And much to our relief, we found it exhausting and bad. Yeah, like, so, it was just tiring. Let's start. I'd love to hear well, what you guys think of Lancaster, <coughs> and then we can move on to Birmingham. Uh, doing these in the order that we played them, Ooh. the fact that... First of all, I should point out, mm. like both games are me- mechanically mostly similar. Yeah. They have a lot of the same... Uh, infrastructure building where there's a turn where you build canals and then you replace them with railways. Yeah. So we should also say probably it's a game set in the Industrial Revolution. Yes. When suddenly England, over the course of like 20 years, went, did canals everywhere so we can transport. We basically invented steam power, right? So we didn't do it, but anyway. Not and me. also we should stress that a lot of British people are proud of the Industrial Revolution, but if you go back and look at history, the only reason England was able to modernise so fast is because we'd gotten rich off of... Colonialism, which gave us a lot of working capital, which allowed us to revolutionise. So it's not like, oh, well, that was a great moment of British history. It's Selective like... history, <laughs> right? Anyway, still, um, one of the nice things about the new edition of Brass is it does make the Industrial Revolution a bit like smoky and impoverished grim. and grim. Yeah. yeah, yeah, which it was. Well, I mean, you build, you pull a whole load of coal out of the ground, you lay railways everywhere, and you build these huge mills where people don't have a great time making a whole bunch of resources. But mechanically, both are very similar. Yeah. You lay a lot of infrastructure, you build buildings, uh, which gradually, the more you build or the more time you spend researching the ones that you build, the better they are. So the more they produce, the more points they're worth at the end of the game. So if you've built lots of factories, you are just scoring more points for them. If you uh, dig coal mines, they just gradually increase in value because you have a token for each one. And the further up your track of coal mines you go, the more they're worth, the more coal they produce. All of this. Some of these buildings facilitate others because if you have iron and coal mines, they're pulling resources out of the ground. You and other players use those resources in their buildings, which is great. It means you yeah. can supply yourself and supply other people. And it has a fun, a fun system whereby you build these things, you put them on the board, but then you don't flip them to get their rewards, which is a combination mm-hmm. of increased uh, income every turn or victory points. And in the early game, you roughly just want to try and get your income up as much as possible. Yeah. And then you get a point in the game where you just think, I don't care about that at all. It's all points, points, points. Because the money's not worth it at the end of the game. But the actual, do anything. actually activating these things is interesting because it's like if you build factories and you need to create trade lines so you can basically sell the goods. And if you've made mines or iron mines and you put cubes on them that then all need to be exhausted and used before you get anything for your frankly crazy investment Which, sometimes. I mean, all of this, right, even just describing this makes me excited again. Yes. It sounds like cool economic stuff that's happening, that's uh, things on the board are firing off each other and you're making decisions that affect other people or you're building in spaces that they then can't build in or but Paul, they're using your coal. And Wasn't it weird? And we said, like, well, you know, we say that Brass Lancaster is bad, but I think it's more that, like, having just the day before, you know, played a version of it, which was basically felt like, in many ways, the same game, but was really fun to so then yes. play something which 
wasn't as much fun. Wasn't it weird that even though Brass Lancashire, we expected it to be slightly more complicated, despite literally having played almost the same game in many, from a distant perspective just yeah. days before, or not so we distant. really struggled with this, didn't we? It's, Everyone. So this, this is what's so interesting to me. It's, they are, I think, mechanically very, very similar, and a few of the resources and trade mechanics are slightly different between the two, but I think it's all about how the maps are designed and how... The, the second one that we played, the Lancashire one... So uh, Lancashire Lancaster. being original brass. And yeah. then one more time for people in case they're Googling this. Or it's available to buy because they're mm. listening to this in oh, the yes. future. Brass Birmingham is the one that we like. Right. And Birmingham, the map for that was just a little bit larger and it had a little bit more availability. Like, we ran out of iron so so quickly. It felt I don't in the think... Lancaster you know what's one, funny? And then that affects your building everything and makes everything more cutthroat and more claustrophobic. We, I mean, yeah, it, it, we don't quite know, really, all the little weird, tiny ways that Birmingham changes. The deck is different, the board is different, the, the costs of things are different. All we know is that when you play Lancaster, you often struggle to do... It's like, what can I do? Whereas yes. Birmingham yeah. is... What should I do? What should I do? Yes, well said. Yes, that's I think a the options different feel. Were value, especially because this is an interesting game in the fact that, yes, you can build these buildings, but you can only build certain buildings in certain locations. And that's based on what you can do, personally, mm-hmm. is based on the cards that you have in your hand. So you have eight cards, and some of them are locations, which means you can spend that to just drop airdrop in basically any kind of building that you can afford in that location. But with the tricky caveat of if it requires coal to build, then there needs to be a network connected that has coal on it, yeah. which is something that is simple, but gosh, we kept forgetting all the time, <laughs> particularly as the board state changed. And especially that thing of like, you look at it and on your turn, when you're waiting for your turn, you plan what you're going to do. And then you go to do it and you can't. And you feel like you've been stupid and forgotten. But actually, it's just because since it was your turn last, like all of the coal has been eaten up on the network and suddenly yes. you just can't do the thing you wanted to do, hey. which is fine. But what we found in, in Core Brass was often you have this hand of cards and you think, well, these four right from the off are no use to me whatsoever. These two are really good, and then these two maybe I can do something with. But then after like one turn, you're like, oh no, that card, that card for Manchester is now useless because yep. people have built stuff in it and there's no spaces. And it became a case of like every turn being like, what can I do this turn? It was such a struggle, that second game, and it was so... The character of it felt so different, and I wonder if, and maybe this is a valid thing for for people to say, but I wonder if some folks are just going to say, "Well, that game is just harder. It has yeah, a, oh, it, a is. Cramp, it a, is yeah, more cramped board, and it's more cutthroat, and it's about it's a difference of playing on easy level or hard level." Well, yeah. I think it it's it's it, Bross Birmingham, Bross um, Lancaster uh, highlight the weird and inscrutable nature of board game design like we we saw the people from Rocksteady Games who had a back and forth with Martin Wallace about designing what we consider the new improved and really great Brass Birmingham and they just seemed like they were, every question I asked them about the board of like why was this change and they had amazing answers like well we looked at 60,000 games online and this one play seemed to mean players lost the game so we improved the quality of that tile and I was like oh wow yeah, and mm. rudely the first impulse in my head was like Wow, these guys are like, they just love brass. That's, and then they also showed me that they had, one of them had a, a new tattoo of a piece of iconography they've done for the redesign of brass. Mm. Um, and I realized they don't, they're not just sort of nerds who have chosen to care about brass. No, they love brass. And they've worked so hard and almost trying to unpick how Birmingham has improved from Lancashire is like almost impossible. These are mm. such complicated games and they've 
poured so many years into them, and I don't know. It's I don't really even really know what my point is. I think I'm just struck well, by it, talking to them. It revealed how much work they put into Birmingham. I was going to say maybe maybe that's what works then. Maybe having played Birmingham and having a better time of it, it's a game that is balanced in a way that keeps you more engaged, keeps you more excited. Where whereas the Lancaster thing, because we sabotaged each other so much, often without even trying. Like, I didn't know I was making plays that were ruining other people's plans. It wasn't oh, I was trying to sabotage deliberate... you quite a lot. Oh. Quite a lot. It was really <laughs> but, fun. Paul, you said you weren't trying to sabotage yeah. people, but you were the reason the person we were playing with lost, because you it just so happened, like, you were also like going I, for shipyards. Yeah, I dropped a shipyard somewhere. And, and it meant that he lost the game. I think the main thing, and it was really weird, because when we looked at it, we're like, oh, this map looks like it has as many icons and as many spaces, if not more, than Birmingham. However, I think the really key thing is the fact that your ability to export goods in the original brass is limited, and it means that you have all of these spaces on the board just taken up for ports, which are only there to interact with other stuff being exported. Yes. Whereas in Birmingham, exports by rail at the edge of the map are just completely unlimited. You, know, yes. you can just keep shipping out as much as you can make, and because you don't have ports, instead you have like these very nebulous like boxes of goods. But it kind of meant, in a way, that was nicer because you knew that when you played Birmingham, even if you had a turn where you thought, oh, I can't really do anything great, you could probably just build like a box of goods somewhere, which might not be an optimal thing to do at all. But it's something. But it's something that, A, you can make, and B, you can definitely ship. Yeah. Whereas it had a thing in the original brass, you could spend ages making factories and then not have any way... <laughs> To, it was weird. I ended up winning our game of like the original brass by a point, <laughs> but I didn't feel like I had any moment in it where I thought, yeah, that was a great play, that was yeah. really good. It was just like pulling teeth, trying to not have a, the worst turn possible for the whole thing. I Whereas think, in Birmingham, I didn't win, but I felt like I had some great plays. I think there might be people listening to this thinking, as we described Birmingham being, oh, great plays, and it's what do you want to do? Like, it, I think cynics out there will go, oh, well, they've made brass into a, yeah, a simple yeah. game. Yeah. But here's what I would say instead. In the original brass, if you have like a cotton mill you can build, often you're going, do I want to build it here or here? Through that hand of eight cards and all the complications, ultimately, probably, you can only build something in two places. Whereas Birmingham, in being able, it's so often you can build something in like, Five places, yeah, which makes it a easier, but b a richer game, yeah, because like which of those five places is the best, and that allows you to like, well, if I build it here, then I can, and you can telescope and think, well, I could. That allows me to do this, this, and this. And I was doing that a lot more in the Birmingham game. I was making more, like, not. I'm not saying all my plans panned out. There were more choices, so many more choices. But there was more of a thing where I had a vision for like the next three turns. I'm going to do this, I'm going to try this, I'm going to try this. If it doesn't quite pan out, I could try this instead. And it meant that the moments where somebody did something that meant you go, oh, I can't do what I want to do now, were rare. Yes. And, but it meant that was fine, whereas it, it felt like in Brass it was constant. It was like, oh, okay, somebody's doing what I want to do, because there was no room. So Everyone then, was vying for the same spaces. Are we saying? Which I think, I think like, if you play it, and it's, so many people have played this game hundreds of times, and, yeah. love it, and if you do that, and you're playing it with people who, who do and have then it's probably great because you all, you all know. You're not going to be like, oh, you did that. That's really annoying. I was going to do that because you think, well, of course they were going to do that. If I wanted <laughs> to do that, I should have done uh, it last turn when I had the chance, you know? And that's fine. But I think that, you know, for us especially, like, we still love Euro games and we still love heavy Euro games, but it's nice mm-hmm. to have stuff where you've got the space 
to be a bit crap at it and not find it incredibly horrible. Yeah. Like, if, and still have the space to shoot ahead and do really well if you're playing well, but... I think what it feels like, yeah, is that Brass is... The Brass Lancashire now is the game that you have to work at and it's hard for the first few players and eventually it starts getting easy. I think Brass Birmingham is still going to like have the same high-level play, but those, but generally it's easier, it's more accessible. I think your yeah. first plays are going to be so much I mean, more fun. I mean, talk about some of the richness as well. What I loved when we played Birmingham was the fact that you did have this interesting interaction between using other people's resources in a much more clean way. Like, in Coal Brass, when someone made loads of coal, right, you're just going to use their coal. Like, there's no question about it. You're going to build things, you're going to use their coal. Whereas there was enough space on the Birmingham map, it felt like, and because you had more choice of where you went, and you could just be like, you know what, I'm going to go and build my own little network up here. Um, it meant that if you wanted to, you could use other people's coal and flip their tiles for them, but you could also maybe use your own. And it became a choice, which was like... Yeah. Do you remember how at the, in our Birmingham game, I was complaining, and it worked out really well for me, but it was such hard work that I had to be like, oh, you know what? I'm just going to play my own small game of brass in the top of the map. Yeah, no, no one was coming up No there. one had developed infrastructure, so I was like, in the second railway age, when everything's expensive, I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to build this big grand pottery works, but that means I need <laughs> railways, which means I need coal, which means I need to build over the hill a, a coal town, and then connect it by a railway, and then, oh, I also need beer, and we'll talk about beer We'll next. talk about, yeah, but... Um, but so I needed four buildings and all the railway connections, but I finished it and then shipped the pottery, and it was worth actually enough points that it might have won me the game. But can you imagine trying to do that in original brass? Yeah, no, yeah. Like no you way. Could, you couldn't build. You couldn't develop your own section of the board. There's no space no, at it's all. Extraordinary. So then, are we saying that it, it does feel like they've been successful in all of this analysis, where we're like, I can't believe they've anal- analyzed it so much. It, they have created a well, version of the game that works very differently and is uh, what more accessible. We we'll and- need to play it more. But I will say that so far, our impressions are that we've never really fully enjoyed a game of brass. We've admitted it's clever. We've yeah. never enjoyed it. We have yeah. played now Birmingham once and enjoyed it not just more than all the games of brass, but like Birmingham is a game I'd recommend. Yeah. Mm. No, I mean I had a lot of fun with it, even though it was a bit crunchier than I, you know, than I usually. I was by the end of it, I loved it. I really loved it. So I, I, enjoyed it. it. So I enjoyed it. So let's lot. talk about the big new addition. Not because yeah. we're talking. So it seems like the big. Uh, the big change they've made really is maps, decks, all this stuff that makes it easier. But the big thematic and fun addition to Brass Birmingham, which isn't in the original game, is beer. Yeah, because what's lovely is when you've got things like iron and coal and you think, I'm going to use theirs, there's a chance that they might be like, oh, I was saving that for myself and you've used it and that's annoying, but maybe they'll be happy you've taken it because they get to flip a thing. The ultimate of this is beer. You build a little brewery and you need brewery breweries to ship things so most of the time whenever you're shipping something outside of the map you can do it as often as you want but if every time you do it you need a keg of beer and to begin with there's some free beer and they're these wonderful little <laughs> wooden, wooden kegs and they really pop on the board and they're lovely um, there's less of them as well it's not like loads of little cubes no, you've got a, a brewery a couple. and it's got one one maybe two <laughs> kegs of beer on it and that means you can ship two things with those beers what's wonderful is that if they're not connected to any network, you've just got a brewery in the hills, then nobody else can use that beer. But you can commission. You can, you can just ask the brewery to like send you a few uh, horses and carts and you can order your beer to be delivered to the train station. So if you're planning to do a bunch of big exports in a couple of turns, because the thing about it is, you know, Brass ideally is a game where you always want to be sitting on a bunch of money. You always want to be sitting on a bunch of coal. You want to have options for when you need it. You can't do that, though, because everyone's eating your buffet all the time uh, without your permission. But with this, it means you can be like, I'm going to airdrop in a brewery in the hills over here, and then I can forget about it. Because Mm -hmm. it means I know I've got two beer 
that no one else can have. And that's the thing that was horribly punishing was if you can be a bit quicker about doing a doing a thing, then you get to drink somebody else's beer. But what the, was wonderful... lubricant for their yeah. network. But what was wonderful was... And it wasn't I, wonderful. What I kept doing to Paul was I had loads... I had my own beer. I, I had a lot of beer, but I had my beer. My special beer. <laughs> but then it was like, well, I'm connected to Paul's beer on the network. So I guess I'll just drink Paul's beer. Because it meant, unhelpful. it meant that it meant that then I could use Paul's resources and still have my own, yeah. which is just such a wonderfully no, greedy system. <laughs> and at one point I tried to be nice and I was like, no, you didn't. Paul has two beers. All right, I'm just going to drink one of them. But then the next turn was Quinn's and he drank the other one. And this was on like the final turn of the game. And Paul was just furious yeah it was, was doing so well up to them but but it is the lubricant that allows you to move some of these things around and yeah, so that's it's a great way to think about it the idea is that you try and if you can i guess squirrel it away somewhere so it only works for you yeah well this and this is the was the funny thing is that the beer kegs at, well, one of the changes in birmingham is that is an original brass every flipped tile is worth a victory point if you've built a canal or a railway connecting it to the network in uh, Birmingham, some tiles are worth zero, which you can deliberately build. So, like, I'm not shipping anything using their railways. But breweries are always worth two, which means it's always incentivized for players to, like, connect a little canal. Yeah. <laughs> you know, connect yeah. a railway to it. But, of course, that means then the beard yeah. gets slurped the other out of the network. The thing with that is that, that, you know, I'd been building this network where I wanted you to have access to my iron and my coal. Yeah. Because yeah. if <laughs> so you use my, my other stuff... I. And flip those tiles, I get loads of points for those, especially because I was getting some of the bigger iron mines. I'm like, great, but it's it's hard to build a network where you hide some things and include the rest. Well, that's it. That's a challenge. Because in brass, it's just about developing a network. And then yeah. in Birmingham, of course, it's such a natural extension of that mechanic to have like, oh, but you don't want this to be on the network. Yeah. <laughs> Which is lovely. And it's also the fact that you can do that thinking, that's my beer up in the hills. But all it takes is for someone to be a bit flush going, all right, well, I'm going to build a train track to your beer. And then you go, no, what? No, they found my beer. Ah. Uh, or even just the fact that we felt like more often it was that thing, you know, I'd eat up some iron expecting and I'd be like, oh, I don't want to do this, but fine, I'll use some of Quinn's iron and I use it. And he just goes, no. Because it's like, you know, there was, you could earmark stuff because you could just have, you could join on someone network and have some collaboration or you could just there was room on the map and because you had the options of being able to ship out anything whereas in brass it has the weird thing the original brass has the weird thing of the sea which means you know all the industries are on the kind of uh, oh this was a cool mechanic yeah it's a really cool yeah but oh no sorry in the so yeah, in the original game, I don't think it's cool. Yeah, it's well, it's thematically great. It's right. just it's way trickier to work with. Which for some people, great, but so, most so, people, I eh. think, I think we missed precisely what this is. So, yeah. in, in original brass, you always have ports on the west because it's in the northwest of England. Yeah, which means you always ship stuff to the west and make stuff in the east. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Birmingham, it's four tokens that are shuffled. Like you ship pottery one direction, you ship crates, crates in one direction, you ship the the cotton in one direction. There's a fourth direction. That accepts everything. Yes. But because these four things are shuffled, it means this board you've got in Birmingham is somewhat randomized yeah. because always north, south, east, or west will be the hub of town. Yeah. You don't know which, which yeah. means there's more replayability because the board has changed. And I think that's why you have space to do your own stuff and you did with your potteries and the fact that, you know, generally speaking in our game, it was right next to Birmingham was where, where everything was accepted. It was yeah. So everyone was like, want to be down there because you can sell anything on those networks. But then no one had touched the north mm. because no one cared it shipped potteries and who cares about potteries Turns I out cared. Quinn's does <laughs> so yes. uh, yeah it was just uh, it was fascinating to me that really I was expecting brass 
Lancashire to be trickier and crunchier, but I also figured that because so many of the rules were the same, it was going to be something which we would have had a real tutorial with. You know, if we've just played, you know, a long game of the other one, this is going to be easier. And it just wasn't. It was really tricky. Starkly, and starkly different. We had so many turns where you just go to do a thing and then you realise you couldn't do a thing. And, and really getting into that zone of being like having to apologise because you realise that your turn... <laughs> like one of my turns took about 10 minutes because I kept going, no, yeah. I can't do that. I'm sorry. No, I'll do... This. Oh, no, I can't. Is it all right if I do... Oh, I'm really sorry. I just was apologising. And it's not... A good feeling. The Even pace, if everyone's like, it's fine, don't no, worry. No, it's true it's, though. The pace was very different that time. Yeah, it was really hard to work out what to do because you didn't have options. You just you had yeah. to try and find something to and do. And often, even in like Container, which obviously we just talked about, it's like an incredibly chewy game. But in Container still, you could just, oh, well, I'll just do something. Because the yeah. social, we're it's a game. We are here to have fun. And that means that sometimes if you can't think of something to do, it's almost a social responsibility to just, well, I'll just do something. Yeah. And that just to keep the game going because I'm mm. boring my friends, which is the opposite of what this is for. Mm. But in Brass, you sometimes, in the original Brass, not Birmingham, you sometimes literally can't do anything. And yeah. you need to look for, well, what's the one thing that I do that makes sense? Yeah. And there's probably something there, but you might have to really crunch to see it. So, yeah, you heard it here first, I guess. Brass Birmingham, the reworked version the of a beloved sequel, classic. I think they're calling yeah. it. Sequel is is fantastic, and it's something if you're if you're a fan of Euro games, but you find sometimes like the really crunchier, heavy ones just a bit much. Yeah, get it on your radar. I'm I'm thrilled. We've got a copy of it. We're taking back, and we're going to be checking it out. For oh, it. should we reveal the best thing about Brass Birmingham? Oh yeah, <laughs> it's in a really small box. The box is about seventy percent the size of every other Euro game that we review. They they both uh, pack quite efficiently. Yeah, it's, and which it's is amazing the, for what's in that. Yeah, it's there's not less stuff. If anything, it's a really generous, beautiful box. We haven't even talked about how nice the it's art is. Lovely, yeah. There's, like, there's really just like no the air in the box. They've just gone. Well, let's make it nice. Which is obviously great. Great for people who don't have yes, people just in their houses. taking it on aeroplanes, or taking it on like planes, you. playing it like I'm about to do right now. So yeah, I'm somebody who loves Euro games, but doesn't always find the time to get into a table because uh, people I play with tend to love yeah. like kind of more thematic, lighter stuff. But I really want to have a couple of brilliant Euros in my collection, and this to me is just is gold dust. And the fact nice. that it's an incredibly dust, wonderful game set in the north of England where I'm from, which mm-hmm. helps, and is in a tiny box that can slide into a cupboard and be an experience that's rich and big but not going to dominate my cupboard and I mean I'm going to be taking I've got Railways of the World which is a much <laughs> ah, yes. opposite side of the spectrum that we checked out but also from designer Martin Wallace I think from, also from Martin oh, Wallace I might be wrong about that no I think it is okay. I think it's one of the same set which is so big and so heavy that I'm building up the courage to carry it to the charity shop <laughs> Because I'm worried I'll do my back in. All right, well, uh, Paul has to jump on a flight, don't you know, hey, Paul? Yeah, I'm going to order a taxi right now to come, hopefully, to this house. Do it on your phone it. while I say the things I say at Ooh. the end of the podcast. If you would like to send us a reader mail, we often say email at contact at shutupandsitdown.com, but a lot of people don't do that. You know, it's easier tweeting uh, at shutupshow if you want to send us a question, if you've got a query, something you'd like to hear us discuss and, and wrap our little brains around that's great <laughs> also uh, tickets are still on sale for the first ever sec- no, second ever shut up and sit down convention at shucks.show that's mm. s-h-u-x dot show you'll find the website for our big party in Vancouver it's going to be amazing I'm really looking forward to it Vancouver is a beautiful place 
And we had a lot of amazing, friendly people coming and playing games together. We've got all sorts of things up our sleeves. But yeah, if you just want to spend some time with other people who like this sort of thing, then you should totally do that. It's going to be great. If you've never been to a board game convention before as well, Shucks is designed for you uh, in mind. Yeah. Partially, I mean, it's a nice sort of coincidence that our site has a lovely audience. A lot of people said that going to the first ever Shut Up and Sit Down convention last year was like the friendliest con they've ever been to. Yes. Just walking around uh, Shucks last year, everyone's like, do you want to play this game? Do you want to play this game with us? And everyone just wants to teach you games. Lots of people were there. For, it was their first ever convention. They had a great time. And Mike Selinker, designer of uh, Lords of Vegas, he said it was... He'd been to PAX 30 times and he said it was like one of the... He'd been to the first couple of PAXs and he said it was exactly the same sort of feel. Like really small, lovely... Cozy. Cozy thing. Cozy. So if you've not been to a board game convention before, don't let this one necessarily slip you by. It could be, uh, you know, the weekend... Of a lifetime. It might not be the weekend of a you lifetime. You could meet your future husband slash wife. Oh, wow. Some people do that. I, yeah. mm. You could find a dog there. You could find a dog and it There's, becomes your new pet. Uh, it's literally possible. That is Won't happen. It's marginally likely. more likely that you'll buy a board game. Yeah. And have a good time. And have a good time. And make friends. And you can, of course, see us, the rest of the editorial team, on stage, having laughs. Doing japes. Laughs. Kicking back. Doing podcasts there, badly. Actually, there are a lot of dogs Live. in Vancouver. There are a lot of dogs in Vancouver. You won't find a dog. Please don't expect to find a dog. But you can look at them. Don't take well, other I people's dogs. I can point at one and just say, look at that dog. You could do that. Yeah, that's, that's, that's absolutely true. I've done true. a lot of that this weekend. Sure. Thank you very much for listening to the 77th Shut Up and Sit Down podcast, everybody. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs>